blessing to be on staff here at the church. And today I have also the, the blessing to be able to continue our study through the book of Romans here today. Uh, but before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we open up for this morning. Faithful Father, we begin today by giving you thanks. Your love endures forever. It never fails. Though there are many ways in which we have failed you each day, thank you so much, Lord, for your abundant supply of mercy and grace. We thank you for revealing yourself through your word. And as we open our Bibles today, Lord, I pray that we would hear your voice. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work, opening our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word, Lord God. May we be transformed into your likeness each day. And it's through your son, Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we start for today, I want to ask by I want to start by asking you a question. Have you ever found yourself coming to the end of something that you've found exceptionally nice and you've been kind of sad that it's coming to an end? Maybe that's a vacation or a trip that you went on and you feel sad that it's this ending. Maybe it's a good book that you've been reading and uh, you're coming to the end of that, and you're, you're sad that it's over. Or maybe for our children and students, it's, it's the end of summer break or Christmas break, although for the parents, I know that's a time of rejoicing. Um, but have you ever experienced one of those times where you kind of feel sad about this great experience ending? Well, today we find ourselves at, at one of those times. Uh, today we are going to be coming, the, coming to the beginning of the end of the book of Romans, We've been in it for about a year and a half now. It's been a journey. But today we take those first steps through Paul's word. And so, you know, we've talked a lot of, about a lot of important and, and sometimes difficult passages in the book of Romans. I'll, I'll list a few here for you today. Uh, you know, we've talked about the, the universal nature of sin. We, we've talked about God's wrath and human disobedience. We've talked about justification by faith. Abraham as the, the founder and the model of faith. Adam and Jesus as the, the two types of humanity. Freedom from the law, new life in the spirit and sanctification. The pattern of, of God's elect in Israel's history. Israel's fa fa failure to submit to God's righteousness. The remnant of Israel, the engrafting of the Gentiles, some moral issues, and even some discussions over food between the strong, believer, or strong believers and weak believers. And those are just a, a very brief overview of the things that we have talked about here over the past year and a half. And as we, can, as we find ourselves to be in what scholars consider to be this conclusion of the book of Romans, I want to I take a moment to urge each of you to avoid the mistake of thinking that what is found in Romans chapter 15, verses 14, through the end of chapter 16, verses 27, is only a conclusion. I, I, I want each of us to avoid this mistake that we, can, that we might think that, oh, hey, we can, avoid, uh, we can afford to skip this part of the book. You know, neglecting or even underestimating this importance of, of this last chapter and a half of Romans would amount to missing a very important part of the application that Paul is writing here in this book. And specifically today, we're going to take a look at, at Paul's definition of what a mature church looks like 
by looking at the church of Rome. And then we're going to see uh, Paul's example of himself, and, and he's going to look at it himself, and we're going to see how he is mature in his faith, and we're going to see his mission, what his mission is, and what the means by which this mission is accomplished. But ultimately, we're going to understand that, that when we are impacted by, by Jesus in a very meaningful way, when we come to know him as our Lord and Savior, we are going to be so utterly changed by the gospel. And, that, and that's something that we want to look at here today. So let's dive right into our text. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles around the room. You can use your phone as well if you have it on there, and it will be up on the big screen as well. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's holy word as we begin in Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ." And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. That is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we begin this section here today of this letter of Romans, we, we see that Paul is beginning in verse 14 with, with these personal remarks to the church at Rome. Now, Paul has never met these individuals before. I think sometimes we forget that. He's never been to Rome yet. He hasn't been there. He doesn't know these people, but he's heard of their maturity and their faith in Christ. Listen again to what Paul says in verse 14 about the church of Rome. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. In, these first, in this first verse, Paul is listing uh, three qualities that he finds within the church of Rome. And these qualities are the, that they are full of goodness, that they are full of all knowledge, and that they're able to instruct one another. And I want to take a moment this morning to, to talk about each of these qualities, because by examining them and looking at this church, we will see that these three items uh, that Paul lists here show that the church of Rome is extremely mature in their faith. And so this first quality that Paul identifies today is that they're full of goodness. When we think of the word goodness, we're probably thinking of maybe kindness, maybe helping those who are in need, and maybe even uh, being considerate in, in some areas of life. And I think that's a pretty good definition, that, that general definition. Um, but the Greek goes even further into the detail with what this word means. Listen to how scholar James Boyce will explain the Greek here. He says, The word goodness is significant because it refers to moral or ethical goodness, 
as well as what we would most naturally think of, namely kindness, thoughtfulness, and charity towards the poor. And so when Paul is saying that, that the church here is, is, is full of goodness, he's basically saying, okay, you are, you're, you're being moral, you're ethical, you're virtuous, and that's a pretty big compliment coming from Paul. But hold on for a moment. With all that being said, Paul just created a dilemma. Paul says that the church of Rome is full of goodness, but if we look all the way back in Romans chapter 3, he says this, What then? Are we the Jews any better off? No, no, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. So did Paul just contradict everything that he has written in the last 14 and a half chapters? How can Paul write that the church of Rome is full of goodness when Paul has already shown that, that humanity is not good at all? And I think it's moments like this where the, like, the unbelievers are frothing at the mouth because they're like, oh, we caught you in something. So are they good or, or aren't they? How do we respond whenever we come up against questions like this? And to better explain this question, I want to start by showing you one of my favorite photos that, of all time here. And this photo, it's called Bible Cross References. I know that's a very uh, uh, interesting name, but it's called Bible Cross References by Chris Harrison. And he's put together a data set of all of the cross references found in all of Scripture. And so the bar graph that you see that runs under this picture it denotes basically all of the books of the Bible and all of the chapters of the Bible, starting with Genesis 1 all the way on the left. And the books alternate in color by light gray and dark gray, and the white areas, those, are the, those denote the, the first chapter of the Old Testament, first chapter of the New Testament. And each length of these bars, you know, you see these bars down at the bottom, they denote the length of the chapter. So that really long middle one right here in the, in the middle, that is Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And then when we look at this, each of these arcs that we see right here, they denote one cross-reference. They denote all of the cross-references within the Bible. There are 63,779 cross-references within the Bible, and the colors here denote the length in which uh, these cross-references go. So from Revelation back to Genesis, it's, it's, it's like the bright colors. And it creates this rainbow-like effect. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of how the Bible is connected in such a way, and it reminds me of the amazing way that, that God has, has allowed this book to be written and his word to be spoken. Now, in recent years, a lot, like with most things, I think, that we've seen, unbelievers can, can kind of take things and, and distort images. And so about a year ago, I saw this photo, but I noticed right away that it was changed. Take a look at this next photo, and on, at first glance, it looks similar, right? Not as many arcs, but it, 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 it's, it's all red. What does that mean? And so this picture, it was done by a group of unbelievers, and what this picture represents are what they say are biblical inconsistencies. And so what, that, what they're basically saying here is that each arc, it's a question, and each of these questions, apparently, are inconsistencies found within the Bible. 
And this idea of goodness is one of them. It's one of the, one of the arcs that is listed up here. But let me give you an example of one of these other ones that they say is a biblical inconsistency. First, uh, they, they, they ask this question of, does God sleep? There is a question of, according to this graph, there is an inconsistency between Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4, which says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither, sleep nor slu- uh, neither slumber nor sleep. And they say that there is an inconsistency because in in Psalm 40, verse 23, it says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. And at first glance, we might say, oh, well, that guy has a point. God is sleeping in one verse. He's not sleeping in the other. But when we look at these things, whenever we come across areas in the Bible that are confusing like this and that we might not know the answer, we have to begin by asking a few questions. Because the Bible, it's filled with so many different genres of literature. It has different literary devices, different authors. It has different cultural contexts in which it was written, different time periods. There's a lot going on in each of these books. And so let's continue with this, this example of does God sleep? First, what is the genre of, of literature in which these verses are, are being written? They are part of the Psalms, so it's poetry. And what does poetry often do? It uses different literary devices to prove a point. And in, verse, in Psalm 40, verse 23, we see that it's using this idea of exaggeration or of a hyperbole. And if you don't really understand what that might mean, let me give you an example. Uh, let me say, the moon was so bright last night that I had to put sunscreen on so I didn't get a sunburn, or I guess moonburn at that point. And so when we see these verses about God sleeping, we understand that in Psalm 40, or 44 right here, we, we can understand that the psalmist, he's exaggerating here. He, he's trying to make this point that it feels like God has left him, or it feels like he has forsaken them. But he's not sleeping in this passage. He's using this as an exaggeration. And so if we take what we just talked about right here and we apply it back to this passage today in Romans, when we look at this, and, and Paul says that the church of Rome is full of goodness, does that mean that they are inherently good? No. Each person in the church of Rome, they're still sinful, and they're still in need of a Savior to rescue them. But when we understand that, that Paul, whenever he discusses that, he's talking about the humanity in general. And now in, in, in chapter 15, verse 14, Paul is writing to specifically a church that is established in their faith. And we see that this, this goodness that Paul is referring to here, it's the goodness that has been given to them because of their faith in the Holy Spirit who is indwelling them. Listen to how theologian Robert Haldane explains this. He says, In our flesh there is nothing good, but equally true from the work of the Holy Spirit on our hearts we may be full of goodness. Paul knows that the people that he is writing to, they're not, uh, they're, they're not being a sinful community or one that doesn't understand what he's saying. He's writing to a group of people that is, that is regularly meeting and practicing their faith. And even though they're not perfect, as seen by this stronger brother, weaker brother stuff that Paul just talked about, we, we see that they're still mature and that they're genuinely changed by the Holy Spirit for the good. 
And they're living out the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So this church at Rome, they're, they're living out this quality that, that we ultimately should strive for as well. And not only personally, but as a church. Right? Paul is writing to the church of Rome. And, and this first mark of spiritual maturity within this church is that of goodness. So can we say the same, both personally and as a church? Are we striving to be full of goodness? So that when others see us, they, they see that we're, that, that we're different. That they see that we radiate the goodness and they ask, what, what, what's different about them? And I think if we can say yes to that question, I would say we're on the right path of being mature in the faith. And so Paul continues in this verse and he says that this, uh, this second quality that defines maturity is that the, the church of Rome is filled with all knowledge. You know, Paul, 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 Paul uses this word of all knowledge. What does that mean? And I think this is another example of how uh, we need to look deeper to understand what Paul is saying here. Because obviously they don't know everything. They're not God. They don't know everything. And so when we look at this verse, Paul is writing to this church that, that knows what, what's going on. You know, they, 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 it's not necessarily in an academic sense that he's writing here but it's rather depicting a, a practical understanding of the Christian faith. Scholar Grant Osborne says that they, the church at Rome, have a comprehensive knowledge of God in the gospel truths, including all that Paul has talked about within this letter. You know, Paul would not have written this massive letter filled with all of these deep spiritual and theological truths if he knew that the, the church couldn't handle it. He wouldn't have done that. And so the church of Rome, it's, it's, it's faithfully seeking to deepen their knowledge of God. And, and just as with the quality of goodness, being filled with all of this knowledge, being filled with the, all the knowledge of God here, it's a quality that comes to believers whenever we have the Holy Spirit. Look back to uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Because the Holy Spirit is at work within this body of believers, they are able to understand the things that Paul writes. They are able to, to live out these truths in their lives daily and within the church. And they're able to understand that the scriptures that they have are so interconnected. They understand what this means, this graph. And that's why it's another mark of this spiritual maturity when they have this knowledge, they, they, they're able to go out and be mature in the faith. And so I ask us, are we seeking to be filled with all of the knowledge of God? Are we seeking to, 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 to be filled with things of Christ? Or are we letting our minds be filled with the things of the world? There's a big difference in both of those things. Right? The world will tell us one thing when the when the Bible and, and Scripture and God tells us another. And this leads into the third quality of maturity that Paul talks about in verse 14, because it builds off of this all knowledge. And it's that they are filled with all knowledge, they can instruct one another. And when we see this word instruct, our English minds automatically go to what a teacher does. A teacher instructs their students or teaches their students. 
But it's one of those words, again, where the Greek goes a little bit deeper. And, and what, the, what the Greek is really meaning here is that to instruct means to admonish or warn or rebuke. And so Paul here is indicating that the church of Rome, they're able to admonish another person in order to correct something that is wrong. The church, they are able to come alongside of its members, help them grow in their faith. And if they start to deviate off of this path, they reach out out of love and kind of give them one of those like firm little pats on the back and gets them back onto that path of righteousness, right? That's what this idea of instructing is. And so what about us today? Are, are we as, as a church and even individually at times able to instruct others and guide them back to the, the things of God? Like, do we care enough for other Christians, enough to point them in the right direction when we see that they're deviating from the path? Do we, do we love others enough to bring up spiritual truths in our daily conversations? Do we love the Lord enough to talk about him regularly? The ability to instruct one another in the way of Christ, it, it, it can be difficult at times because sometimes it's uncomfortable, but it's ultimately another sign of spiritual maturity that you can have those conversations, that you can partner with people and love people. And each of these three qualities that Paul lists here, it, it, these are important markers for a healthy church. They, the, these qualities are what we should strive for, both personally and here at Living Water. But however, we, we, we need to understand one thing, that these qualities will never be able to meet them unless we have the Holy Spirit with us and unless he changes us. Without God, we're not capable of developing these qualities in ourselves. It's, it's through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives that we can be full of goodness, that we can be filled with all knowledge, that we can be competent enough to instruct one another. It's all through God. And if we're able to meet those markers, we'll, we'll be on the right path to becoming mature and becoming a mature church that is guided by the Holy Spirit in all things. And so then, if we continue with our passage here today, we see a shift. Paul goes from talking about this church that is spiritually mature to now talking about himself and giving an example of his mission in life and ultimately the means by which this mission is accomplished. Let's continue in our, in our Bibles here today. We're going to be, let's read verses 15 and 16 here. It says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul starts off this section by saying he has written very boldly. And that's probably an understatement. Um, because as we've discussed, Paul, Paul knew that the believers here, they, they are mature in their faith, but ultimately this letter that he writes is to them because they, like us, sometimes forget God. They sometimes neglect the word of God and they let it slip from their active minds. And so Paul here is living out what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, whenever he says, Therefore I, Peter, Intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truths that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, 
you may be able at any time to recall these things. And so just like Peter, Paul's desire here is to build up the church, helping them to, to know and understand and live out these truths that they are talking about. And so as we continue in these, these couple of verses, we see something else that catches our eye. Paul explains that he is a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. What is he meaning here whenever he says priestly service? That's, a, that's an interesting phrase that he has. Well, there's a lot of debate in regard to this idea of priestly service. Some scholars will say that Paul is identifying himself as a priest in this verse. But when we look at the context of this verse and look what Paul is saying here, we know that he's not identifying a position with that phrase, but rather a duty. And other scholars, they'll say that this verse can actually be translated to say a public servant rather than priestly servant. But again, that, that, that idea is flawed because we're translating this to mean a position rather than Paul's responsibility to actually do something. Plus, if we use public servant, it takes away the significance of what Paul is talking about here. And so to get a better understanding of what Paul is speaking of, look at the rest of the verse. Paul is saying that he has been, he's been called to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So right here we see Paul's mission, right? Paul's mission in regards to this priestly service is that the Gentiles might become an offering that is acceptable to God and sanctified by the Spirit. Paul's drawing the reader's attention here by using this sacrificial language, and basically he is describing, using this sacrificial language to describe his ministry to the Gentiles. And like we said, the church at Rome, they are filled with all knowledge. They know the scriptures very well. So this is immediately drawing them back to Isaiah 66, verse 20. And this is what it says. It says, And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So Paul here, just like Levitical priests back in the Old Testament, bring uh, burnt sacrifices to the Lord. Paul's mission here, he's to offer up the Gentiles as an offering to God. Paul, Paul is indicating that this offering to the Gentiles, it's also acceptable. Why is that a big deal? Well, that's important because in, according to the Old Testament, there were offerings that were not acceptable to God. You know, back in that time, the Israelites, they considered the Gentiles, all of the, all of the other people, to be unclean. The Jews thought that as well. And, and, and so this unclean offering would not have been acceptable to God. And so, why are they acceptable? Why is Paul saying that these unclean people are acceptable in the end? Well, he qualifies it by saying, because they have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The word sanctified, it means to be set apart or dedicated to something. And so these believers that are being offered up, these Gentile believers, they are being set apart and dedicated to God, and that's ultimately why they are acceptable to God. And so Paul's mission here is ultimately to bring these Gentile believers to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. But as we get into this next section of, of, our, of, of these verses, we ultimately understand that, that it's not Paul doing this, right? That's his mission, but the means by which he does it 
is ultimately God through the Holy Spirit who sanctifies the, the Gentiles, turning them from unclean sinful creatures into an offering fit for the service and praise of God. Let's read the rest of our verses here today. We'll be, these are verses 17 through 21. It says, In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed, by, signs and, uh, sign, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And so right away we, we see something that Paul that, that is catching our eye. Paul is indicating here that he is proud of all that he has accomplished in Christ. In other translations, like the NIV, it will say, Therefore I glory in my service to God. Now this is another example of where unbelievers here, they might say, oh, we've caught you in something. Because right here in this verse, you know, Paul's being very prideful here. And in Scripture, we're told not to be prideful. And so, unbelievers, this will be one of these arcs right here that say, oh, hey, He's being prideful, but he also tells us not to be prideful, inconsistent. And it's at this point, again, that we need to ask ourselves, what is being said here? Why is Paul being prideful? And for this answer, this one's pretty straightforward. Paul is being prideful here because he recognizes that his accomplishments have nothing to do with himself, but everything to do with Christ. He is not prideful in himself. He's prideful about Christ. And you see, whenever we look into the New Testament, this boasting language, this prideful language that Paul is talking about here, it, it happens 60 times within the New Testament. In 55 of those times, it's actually Paul using that language. And of those 55 times, not once is Paul being proud of himself, not once is he saying that he is superior, but rather, each of those 55 times, he is saying that, because of what Christ done, has done in him and through him by the work of the Holy Spirit, he can be proud. Christ is the means by which everything in his life has been accomplished. And so he continues that, that because of this, I will, I will venture not to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring these Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that Jerusalem, that from Jerusalem all the way to around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. According to Paul here, there's nothing else that matters other than what Christ has accomplished through him. And Paul goes on, he, he says that his words and his deeds, his words and actions, they don't mean anything unless it's Christ. His ability to, to do signs and wonders, they don't mean anything unless it has something to do with Christ. They all stem from the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And because of that, Paul is able to take the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to this place called Elycrium. Now I want to pause for a moment. I want to show you a couple maps here. Because this area that Paul has just laid out, it's a massive area. Now this right here, this picture is a little uh, de 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 deceiving because this is the entirety of the Roman Empire. What I want you to focus on here is the green and the purple parts. Those are the parts in which uh, would have been the Roman Empire during Paul's day. 
all right? You see Elycrium is right up over here by Italy, and Jerusalem's down towards the bottom right here. Now, this next slide, I'm going to show you this is where Paul has done his ministry. This is where he's saying he was able to go. And that's a pretty massive area. So let's zoom in for a moment. Let's look at his missionary journeys. This guy was able to travel all around. And his idea of traveling is not like ours. He can't just jump in a bus or a, or a car. He can't jump in a plane. You know, he's taking his, his horse, walking, maybe a sailboat every now and then. You know, he, he's getting to these places. He's going all around. He's, he's taking this, this gospel to the places it's never been. But why? Because of Christ. He's doing this without Christ. He would not have been able to do any of this. It's an amazing thing. And so because Paul's mission is to take the gospel to places it's never been, he continues with verses 20 and 21 wherever he, when he says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul's calling is to take the gospel where no one has ever gone before in order that the Gentiles who have never heard it would might hear the good news of Jesus and experience the life-giving presence of Jesus. And so he's going to go even beyond those maps. That's his goal. And so he quotes Isaiah again here because Paul is viewing his ministry as the fulfilling of this prophecy in Isaiah 52, 15, where it says, So he shall sprinkle many nations, Jesus, Kings shall shut their mouth because of him. For that which has not been told, that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. And what's significant about Paul quoting this verse here is that it comes right before this picture of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, this picture of Jesus. And Paul knew this, he recognized this, and he knew that the, the church of Rome would recognize this as well. He was called to these many nations that this, this prophecy talks about. He was called to these Gentiles that, no, that had no idea what Jesus did for them or who he even was. So he wanted to go out and do just that. That was his mission. And he was going to do it for Christ in all things. He was the means, Christ was the means by which Paul would do that. And so what are we called to do? What is our mission? What is your mission? You know, last time I preached in Romans, we talked about our spiritual giftings. What are the giftings that Paul has given, or not Paul, what God has given you? Thank you, thank you. Misspeaking. What are the giftings that God has given you, right? What's your, what's your mission field? You know, for me, I, I know that I am called to preach Jesus. That's my mission in life. That's what I am ultimately called to do. And where I'm still learning and still trying to work at getting better with public speaking, because I, I get so nervous up here, where I'm still working on this, that is my mission. And it's ultimately, I'm never going to be able to accomplish that mission unless Christ is in me, unless the Holy Spirit is allowing me to do this. You know, for my wife, she's down in the nursery right now, so I can talk about her. Um, but her mission is to use her gift of music to impact the lives of the children that she works with in a local hospital. You know, her mission, it, 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 she could be doing so many other things. She could go play in an orchestra. She could go do something that would pay her a lot more money with music. 
But her mission is that she would go and care for and love for the kids that she sees daily. All by using this gift of music. That's her mission. And she's ultimately accomplishing that mission with Christ. Christ has given her this gift of music, right? And so no matter where we are called, no matter what giftings that we might have, let us use them to bring glory to God in all things that we do. Just as Paul did as his example here, just as, just as these examples that we find in Scripture are doing, let it all be for Christ. So, so what is our mission? What is your mission? And so as we begin to wrap up for the day, I, I'm going to just do a little, I'm not, I shouldn't say little, I'm going to do a big shift here, and you'll see why here in a moment. But as I'm writing this sermon here this week and being in prayer, I sometimes get distracted very easily if my phone is sitting next to me. And, 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 you know, SportsCenter pops up, and it's talking about the NFL. And so I start thinking about the NFL. Uh, it's that time of year where football season's really kicking off, right? And I know I'm excited for it. I'm sure some of you are as well. And if you watch the NFL or watch football or any sport, really, because I think most sports do this, that every year as the season goes on, there is this all-star selection that happens. Uh, the NFL, they, they choose the best players of, from the league, and at the end of the year, they are voted on and appointed to a, uh, their respective divisions teams. So they have the AFC and the NFC. Um, and, and so the people who play for teams in the AFC, they get promoted to this AFC team. Same thing with the NFC. And now each division at this game, they wear these same colored jerseys, right? So the AFC is in these red and white, usually, jerseys. The NFC is usually in, like, these blue and white jerseys. And they all are playing this game at the end of the year called the All-Star Game or the Pro Bowl. And, and so what happens is they play this game, but something very striking happens to me when they play this game. That even though they are all wearing the same jersey, they don't really actually play for that team, right? And they show that by wearing the different helmets that they play for. All the Steelers play players wear the Steelers helmet. All the Eagles players wear the Eagles helmets. Steelers are better, by the way. Um, and so, <laughs> but they, they wear these helmets to denote the teams that they actually play for. But when it comes to this game, you notice that these players, they're not actually playing hard. They're not actually running hard. They play gingerly because ultimately in this game, they don't want to mess up my contract, right? They, 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 they only want to play for the team that pays them those big bucks. So for this all-star game, they just play very gingerly. And when I think about this, it, it really strikes me because I think at a lot of times we are like those NFL all-star players. Because we wear jerseys that say Christ, but our helmets say worldly culture, right? When, when, when it comes to church, we throw on our Jesus Lives Here t-shirt, and, and when we get here, it, it, we're still wearing these helmets of lust, of pride, of politics, of what have you. That's the team that we play for. That's the side that we're really on. And we live in this mindset that after we finish this little thing here this morning, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to run with my squad. We get so caught up with things other than God. And I think we need to flip that, right? But it's ultimately the Holy Spirit that enables us to do that, to, to see our real mission here. 
And Paul realized that in his own life. He wore this jersey of religion, but ultimately he had a helmet of self-righteousness on until Christ came and set his priorities straight. And from that day forward, Paul had this new mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he accomplished that, not by doing anything that, that he did, but it was ultimately through Christ that he accomplished that. And so no matter what our mission is, no matter, what the, no, no matter where we go, what mission field we're in, the, the mission needs to be accomplished and rooted in Christ. Paul knew that, and that's why he's faithfully following after God in all things. You know, Paul knew exactly who he is and who he was. Without Christ, Paul was a murderer who sought to kill Christians. And he did a great job at that, sadly. He, he was a murderer who killed Christians. But when he had an experience with Christ, it absolutely changed him. God radically altered his life to the point that instead of killing Christians, he was bringing the living water of the gospel to these people who needed it. These people who were, who were like he once was, lost and dead to sin. And he did nothing for anything in return. The only, why he did it was to bring glory to God. And I think that's amazing. So what if we were sold out for, as sold out for God as what Paul was? What if we are seeking to become spiritually mature like the church at Rome? What if our lives were so ingrained with the gospel that people couldn't help but ask, what makes that person so different? The world, I think, would radically change. Let's not only be a people, but a church that reflects Christ and is defined by our maturity in the ways of God, whose mission is to reflect Christ in everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that, everything that comes out from us in this church. Let us be a reflection of Christ in all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you, Lord, for this time that we have spent together here this morning, learning more about you and worshiping your holy name. As we leave this place today, may we be committed to worshiping and serving you in our daily lives. And Lord, show us ways that we can, we can bless others each day. Help us to see you in every single moment of our lives. Help us to see your blessings all around us in the simple, small things that we experience each day. And Father, as we leave this place, please guide our steps. Lead us to exactly where you need us to be. And may we, be, may we continue to be transformed by your Holy Spirit in every aspect of our being so that when others see us, they see a reflection of you, Jesus. Continue to walk with us each day. And Father, as we take this offering here this morning, I pray that all these funds that we collect will not be used for what I want or what the staff wants here at the church, but ultimately, Lord, for what you need, that we will be able to help this church continue to reflect you in every aspect of its being. So be with us now today, Lord Jesus. And it's in your most gracious and your most